Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chutla Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. A Native American boy sat at his mother's feet in Indian territory, eagerly listening to the story of when his mother was young. She told of happy times with family and friends in Mississippi before they traveled to their new homelands. The boy couldn't help but ask though, why did her family leave Mississippi? And whatever happened to his grandma and grandpa and all the cousins and friends who still frequented her memories? Tears filled her eyes as she told of playing with her cousins in the yard when soldiers came to their home and forced her family to come take a long walk to Indian Territory. They had very little time to grab what they could from their home, the home that had been passed down through generations in a land that her ancestors had roamed for centuries. They had no choice but to join the soldiers and to make that 500-mile walk, now known as the Trail of Tears. She feared the soldiers as she observed them hurting and even killing some of the people on the long journey. Little babies were left behind to die. The elders were beaten for not being able to keep up, not to mention the freezing cold and the diseases that caused some to give up and sit down on the earth, making the decision that they wouldn't go any further and would die where they sat. Upon arrival to Indian Territory, she found herself and her mother now alone. Her grandparents, father, baby sister, and several cousins met death along the way. Facing starvation and fearing the unknown, they hoped to find food and settle in with some fellow Choctaw that they had met along the way. But soon they also found themselves raided by warring tribes and the light-skinned people who entered their land. Not a single day was easy. The stress from being torn from their homelands was only the beginning of a long struggle. Although many years had passed since this dramatic ordeal and she had married and bore her little boy, she never forgot the pain of watching her family die, and she was tormented by the memories in her nightmares. She often became anxious and angry when the little boy would make loud noises, like when he once dropped a bowl of corn on the floor, and she severely scolded him for wasting precious food. Occasionally, she would hit him. He decided it must be a way of releasing her built-up fears and pain, perhaps as a result of the terrifying journey she had made. 
The little boy then faced his own dreadful ordeal when one day men came to the house to take him away to what they called a boarding school. He couldn't figure out why he had to leave the only people he had ever known. He missed his mother and his community. He wanted to go home. Despite making a few friends, he was unhappy and woke up every morning fearing what might happen that day. The teachers and the staff were angry and mean. They cut off his long hair and would beat him and the other students if they spoke their language, but he didn't know how else to speak and he couldn't understand what the teachers were saying. He was worked from sun up to sundown, and sometimes it was hard to perform his chores with a broken arm or the headache from one of the beatings. He lived and grew up in fear, unable to understand why he was made to be something he was not, and unable to be with his family ever again. Upon returning to his home at age 18, he found that his mother had passed and nothing was as it had been before. Eventually he married, but the happy times were short-lived. His memories and pain he suffered from both his mother and the boarding school led him to drink and to hurt his wife and their children, and they quickly learned to also follow suit doing the same thing to their own families someday. This isn't just a one-off sad story that happened to one family. This was an occurrence among thousands of American Indian families, and the story continues on, in some cases with little to no change. I tell this story to help paint the picture of why our Native American community tends to have some of the highest numbers of suicide, addiction, and abuse compared to the rest of the world. There is hope, and many are learning to break cycles that have destroyed this community for generations, but there is still much more work to do. A phrase that we hear more and more these days is generational or historical trauma, and it is a very real and very detrimental situation that needs addressing. According to the Administration for Children and Families, historical trauma is multi-generational trauma experienced by a specific cultural, racial, or ethnic group. It is related to major events that oppressed a particular group of people because of their status as oppressed, such as slavery, the Holocaust, forced migration, and the violent colonization of Native Americans. I'd like to introduce you to a gentleman I've been speaking to that can help us understand this challenge and talk through what hope can look like and how we can get there. Dr. Art Martinez is the co-director at the Center for Native Child and Family Resilience, Tribal Law and Policy. He is a member of the Chumash tribe and a clinical psychologist sharing a unique melding of clinical and cultural experiences. Dr. Martinez has served as an expert witness in more than 3,500 cases, including state, U.S. federal district courts, and tribal court jurisdictions. Dr. Art serves as a clinical psychologist and head of service of several tribal mental health programs. In 1999, Art was appointed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services to the National Advisory Council for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services, or SAMHSA, SAMHSA. In 2015, Dr. Art joined the Children's Bureau and established the Center for Capacity Building for Tribes as the Senior Services Advisor for Tribal Capacity Building in a continuation of service to tribal communities. In 2018, Art became the co-director of the Children's Bureau Quality Improvement Center entitled the Center for Native Child and Family Resilience. In the past, he served as the executive and clinical director of the Child and Family Institute, one of the principal mental health contractors for Sacramento County Child Protective and Children's Mental Health Services. Dr. Art also previously founded and directed the Washoe Family Trauma Healing Center in Gardenville, Nevada. 
This center served as the primary provider of mental health and child assessments for dependency matters for tribal court jurisdictions in the state of Nevada. Dr. Art's master's thesis specifically addressed the salient issues of Indian child welfare in America, and his doctoral research and dissertation focused upon the use of traditional Native American health approaches within clinical interventions within Native American families. Holly Toe, and welcome, Dr. Martinez. Paco, good to be with you today. Uh, good to be joining you here from the Washoe tribal lands at Meeks Bay at Dawaga, which is uh, the Washoe term for uh, by the water part mm. of Dao, this uh, Lake Tahoe. And it is absolutely beautiful. I'm so jealous that you're getting to sit there. For my <laughs> listeners, I'm seeing Arts on video, and he's got this amazing like mountains and lake in the background. And so, and here I am just sitting in my office. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dr. Martinez, do you prefer to be called Dr. Martinez or Dr. No, Art or just Art? Just Art's fine. Oh, well, that makes it easy. Well, thank you yeah. so much. So, how is everything out your way? You're normally out in Nevada, though, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm in, uh, uh, we're right at the border here of California and Nevada. And things are, are well here. We have, uh, you know, the ongoing tragedies of our communities with uh, COVID and violence that, that uh, seems to be um, a constant over the last few years within, within our communities. In the work that I do, I am a trauma specialist, uh, clinical psychologist, and I'm Chumash of the Chumash tribe. I'm able to be at least a part of the healing that, that goes on within the community on many levels, but Right now, I, I just see the needs of our people as just being so great. So it's good to be here and good to be here with you. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you're here today. And I actually have wanted to talk to you for quite a while about this very important topic that we have. When you talk about that healing aspect, you're much more than a psychiatrist that is just helping your people to do better. There's so much more to this. So I'm excited for everyone to hear about the good work that you're doing out there. Plus your background is so extensive, as I mentioned uh, earlier in this intro. So, but I wanted our guests to know a little about you first. Where did you grow up? And if you would tell us a bit more about the Chumash tribe. Well, I grew up in the San Inez, Santa Barbara area of San Inez area of Santa Barbara County, and um, we have uh, in the San Inez Valley we have a uh, our tribal people there who have the San Inez band, but the, a much larger population of Chumash people living throughout the county area and actually throughout. Central California, whom uh, only one of our bands are actually federally recognized. So um, about 85% of our tribal members uh, are not federally recognized. Mm. So it, it makes it difficult uh, for us when we have, you know, different categories of Chumash tribal members of recognized unrecognized um, descendants, tribal members, um, you know, at many levels. So so we, we struggle like many tribes do with defining um, our 
uh, alliances or identification. Mm. Um, and the uh, much like many of the California tribes, the California tribes were were all recognized when it came time to sign a treaty back in the 1800s. But when the federal government refused to ratify the treaty, then with that, uh, later on in the Termination Act, which also affected Oklahoma and other areas, the um, the the policy was that uh, the to to not recognize uh, tribes, and uh, with the hopes that that we might just go away. Well, we haven't, and here we are today. <laughs> Amen. You're still here. That's right. Isn't that interesting that we tend to take it for granted that so many of our tribes are federally recognized, but there still are so many that are not. Yes, uh, one quarter of all the federally recognized tribes in California, I mean, in the in the country are from California. And there are so many more that are not federally recognized. And that's because of the federal government's policy to only recognize the bands of bands and to some extent clans of uh, California tribal members as opposed to tribes. Hmm. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate. I hope that things can change at some point. Is that well, an endeavor right now? Well, right now the the we're we're hopeful that with some new regulations and some new um, procedures been put in place that more tribe more more bands may might be recognized within tribes and um and that with that those bands then the uh the impetus to kind of draw together and mm -hmm. confederate absolutely wow so later we're even going to talk more about your um chamash family history and some interesting stories there but let's get started learning about and really understanding the topic of today, which is about historical trauma. And that story I told earlier about the boy who his mother had experienced trauma, and he did as well. And that really started a cycle that just continued on. How common is a story like that among our indigenous people? Well, it's, it is um, more often the case than not. Uh, with people, we don't need to think very hard to think of the the levels of trauma that have impacted our families as we look back even on our own family histories. We see not only levels of trauma that are expressed in each generation, but uh, from the point of first contact, we also see that there has that those traumatic experiences, traumatic impacts on our people haven't quite stopped yet. Mm -hmm. They've been replaced by different types of trauma, but the traumatic experiences continue. And so I often tell people that, you know, one of the things that, that we look at in, in the treatment of trauma is the step is to stop the traumatic experiences. And in the Native community, we really don't have that that luxury, if you will. We we have to trauma 
while the traumatic experiences continue to happen on a daily basis. Wow. It's, it is a real thing. And that's why I think it's important for us to talk about this today, because I do think that sometimes people hear, I hate to call it a buzzword, but they hear those so-called buzzwords of historical trauma. And they think, oh yeah, just another psychological phrase or whatever, when it's so much more than that. And there's so much validity to it. I hope people can understand that. So some people don't know a lot about the boarding schools, which we know that a lot of trauma originated there for so many of our people. So what happened there in those schools and how has it affected generations of people? Well, remember that the boarding schools were a, a generational experience that translated itself over time. Mm -hmm. So in California, just to give you my specific uh, history of California. We went from a time of being um, rounded up and uh, enslaved to a point of then being forced into missions, <clears throat> which it was um, not only a, a forced um, in, in impetus, I guess, to to uh, convert or demand to convert and to be baptized, mm -hmm. but also then to provide all the labor that would be needed for these large, large missions, which were much like a plantation. Mm -hmm. and, and then after that came a period in California of uh, state-sanctioned slavery of Native people, and then uh, the extermination of native, native people uh, being bounty hunters. Mm. Right around that time, the boarding schools came in, and it was, uh, and and by the way, I should just say, remember that in California, our our villages and our communities had existed in California for many of them for over ten thousand years in the same location. Mm, mm -hmm. And our ways were very, very traditional and grounded in those locations. And because of the bounty uh, bounties that were were um, decreed, whole villages had to pack up and and run in the middle of the night, uh. one night. So after so many thousands of years of being at the caretakers of our area. We were forced to flee in order to save our lives and the lives of our family. In that, uh, shortly after that came the boarding schools, which were kind of sold as to our people as, you know, we're going to take your children away so that they won't be harmed, so that you, you won't have to run with them. Right. Um, and that they'll be taken, they, that way they can't be killed. Uh, because many were being killed in Southern California, um, dating back to the times of the Spaniards, a, a common way of capturing uh, native our native people was to um, to take the babies and capture the babies and throw them into cactus patches. Oh my God! So that they would scream and cry and and be, you know. Uh, just consumed really by the cactus oh. and that 
and then the people would come to save the babies and then they would be captured wow so there's a um a great traumatic history and if you can imagine going back all the way to the time of the spaniards that each generation was impacted by a different traumatic history and traumatic experience that was unique to that generation. Mm-hmm. The boarding schools were just another impact. They were a very severe impact, but they were another impact that took away from us the the very people who we were, our livelihood, way of eating, our way of dressing, clothing ourselves, um, our ability to speak our own language. Um, and to be even members of our own families. Uh, mm. So the the idea was to take our identity away. And that happened as much in, uh, at that time, that happened as much in government uh, boarding schools as in uh, mission schools. Mm-hmm. So we had that wave. And that wave was followed by a wave of still boarding schools, you know, still boarding schools and mission schools still continue, but mm-hmm. it was more predominant that our children were removed from our care um, and placed in non-native foster homes. And uh, to to the point where, uh, you know, in some of our communities, upwards of uh, uh, more than 35% of our children were in placement at any given time. Mm-hmm. So those children rarely returned back. And so you can imagine what happens to each generation. Um, and and then uh, those, those experiences still continue that keep our, our communities feeling unsafe. Um, from the missing and murdered to the the effects that drugs and alcohol have taken upon our communities, mm-hmm. to the effects of domestic violence and violence on our reservations, um, which we don't particularly have the the in California and in Nevada we don't have the uh, we don't always have the power to protect um, our families from non-native perpetrators. Mm. How so? Uh, and why Why is that, you think? Well, in California, it's often because the, um, the perpetrators, uh, I'm sorry, it's often because the jurisdiction is given to, much like it was in Oklahoma for a while, or for a long while, the jurisdiction for, for um, law enforcement was given to the state yep. and the state authorities. And the state authorities just didn't see it as worth their while to enforce particularly domestic violence laws in tribal communities um, and, or to investigate missing people or to investigate murdered people. Hmm. And so what we, so we, it, it continues the, not only the feeling of vulnerability and lack of safety within our communities, but also the feeling of being in danger at any mm. given moment. 
And so with that came the lack of ability to protect our families, protect ourselves. Um, the in, in, in Nevada, it was the inability to, um, to arrest and prosecute um, non-native uh, offenders. Hmm. And so uh, while that has changed to some extent, we know that the legislators are actively seeking to rescind that and to, to make that the case again. Hmm. And amongst people who, you know, a large population of people who are, you know, what we might call perpetrators, um, they are very aware of that. They're very aware of that um, they are not likely to be prosecuted in a, in a tribal community. That's and so therefore, it becomes a magnet. And it just it just goes back to that whole some people, some non-natives seeing as Native Americans is just not worth anything. It right. still happens it's, today. Yeah, we're more, more than marginalized. It kind of dehumanized. Mm. And, and so, so that's the right word for it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so go, there, yeah, go there, ahead. Um, and then that has continued even today to now um, – that same thing of uh, perpetrating against individuals has kind of translated itself to perpetrate, perpetrating corporations perpetrating against our lands. And we have a, had a lack of ability to protect our sacred lands, which are almost, uh, well, they're, they're as important to us as our survival itself. And um, so I speak to you today from the Washoe tribal concessions at Meeks Bay, which the tribe said, well, if we, if you can't, Lake Tahoe is their center of their world. It is their homeland. Mm -hmm. um, but yet they have no tribal uh, trust land in and around the lake. Oh, really? They have, they have other areas that are, um, that were, just as much tribal lands, but in Nevada and California, but not at Lake Tahoe, which was really the center of their entire world. I bet. That's probably where they did all their fishing and parts of their hunting. Oh, by and the way, what a beautiful place to oh, yeah. <laughs> have, you know, that that generations of, of people living there, but it was a wonderful place to be. Right. So this property that I'm at today is an attempt through just basically a, um, a lease of a concession of Meeks Bay for the tribe to establish that they do have a right to be here at uh, Lake Tahoe and to recognize that they can gather amongst their sacred lands and their, all of their sacred spots that are here at the lake. Wow. So that's uh, one of the reasons that we're gathering here today to, a gathering that I'm a part of here today. Wonderful. It's uh, probably great to be among everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah, great. Just soaking in the air, being <laughs> with your your colleagues there and family to some oh, degree. Our community. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. It's great. It's a celebration of culture. Yes. Well, I hope you all enjoy. Some... How, how long will you be there? Well, just a few days, but yeah. the the tribe runs the 
the operations here at Meeks Bay throughout the summer. It's closed during the winter. Okay. Wow. Nice. Again, I'm jealous, but I'm really happy for y'all. <laughs> so we have to come out and visit us. I would love that. If the invitation's <laughs> there, I'm there. <laughs> Hold on. I'm getting my plane ticket real quick. Um, so, you know, we talked about, you talked about the boarding schools and I thought that you really gave us some good, shed some good light on understanding, understanding that. And it's not just the boarding schools. I tend to think that the removal of many tribes was also traumatic. You know, when we talk about the trail of tears and other removals that happened in different parts and later, even after what some people even knew, like in 1907 or somewhere around there, my Choctaw people had another removal, but yes. in other words, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yes. I mean, it, it, it continued to happen for many tribes for a long, long time. And for some tribes, they were moved to one area and then told, well, that, that we might need that area. So they would then <sighs> move to another area. For um, the love of God. I mean, can you yeah. imagine, especially if they had already started settling that area, which is really hard to do and getting used to, I don't know, what the grasses or the red clay dirt that they weren't used to or whatever it was. I mean, I, I don't always hear people talking about the removal in that context of generational trauma. What do you think? Should we be talking about that more, even though it was so far back, but well, it still got passed down? Remember that what happens is that when something like that impacts a generation, then that is expressed in the next generation to some extent. But mm -hmm. the following generation after that are the ones that really experience it. And I can give you a personal story of mine that that is uh, uh, that is with that. I yes, um, please. I didn't have in in the experience of being removed and put in a in a mission school or foster setting or mm -hmm. anything like that uh, specifically, but. Uh, we lived out in the country on a small little ranch area, and we had a we we had orchards, which is very common in Southern California tribes. To that we we all seem to have an orchard, and um, and as children, I I was remembering at one point that as children, when whenever someone came down our, our road, because you could see people coming, the you know the dirt dust coming. And um, mm -hmm. we're, regardless of where we were, whether we were in the house or not, we, we all ran mm. and we hid in the orchard. We'd oh climb up in the trees and we would just sit there. And we didn't think, we figured all kids did this. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> and we would just sit there until, you know, they kind of get out and we saw who it was or it looked safe. And then eventually we'd kind of come down out of the trees and, and mm. then come over and, you know, it looked if it looked like everything was okay. That is, I mean, how fearful were you? I mean, what were you thinking and feeling? That must have been terrifying for you. Well, it, it wasn't necessarily terrifying, but I remember that we we wanted, we didn't know if we were safe at any given time. Right. And so <clears throat> it, it could be, no, no matter who it was. And... um so we, it was a, a learned behavior to run and hide. Wow. And 
I never put it together as, as being anything that was a traumatic, you know, expression until later on in life. When I realized, first of all, most children don't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we all don't all go run and hide. Right. Yeah, right. Kind of an unusual thing. <laughs> and, and then my, uh, one of my aunts told me that, oh yeah, that we, we all used to do that because they would come get us. You know, wow. if you didn't hide, they would, they would come and take you. Oh my gosh. And so that in her generation, the children were taught to run when someone was coming and to just go up in the mountains and hide. Oh my God. That is so, so sad. Um, and, and after all that, they, uh, you know, the, the experience was so generations later, just to make it simple, the generations later, the behavior still survived. We weren't quite sure why, but right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was still there. It was just something we did. Um, and there were many other behaviors like that, that I can remember, um, that later on I realized that, wow, most kids probably don't do that. Um, and they, what we, what we find is that that's, those are intergenerational expressions of trauma that happen sometimes for generations after that. And then if you take that experience and you put another layer of trauma that happens in the next generation, then that's going to be expressed for generations. And they don't, they don't have a compiling or an additional effect on each other. They have a multiplying effect on each other. Oh. And so then we begin to see them as flawed. You know, somehow there's something wrong with, mm. you know, with right. either us or other people who look like us. And we begin to identify with the aggressors, you know, that, you know, many uh, of people that, that um, just say, well, you know, if you just follow the right way, you won't have these problems. Mm. Um, but <laughs> that's also an expression, of course, of, of uh, that diminished sense of self. So in all of these ways, as we then begin to, to shed that and say, that, you know, we have survived this and we are strong in our survival and our culture has a, has an incredibly, uh, is an incredible sense, uh, place of support and, and, um, strength for us as a people mm -hmm. that we can't deny. Then once we begin to kind of come out of that, come out of, I think of it as coming down out of the trees, right? Um, right, right. Kind of come down out of the trees a little bit. We begin to realize that, hey, how did this happen? How, why is it that we're having these problems? And remember, that is the, the, the that's the most insightful of our people. Any of our people are still there. Hmm. And many of our people that we worry about or that we see as maybe troubled within our communities, you don't have to look too hard to say, well, these are the families that were significantly impacted by each of these waves of traumatic experiences that happened. Wow. And with each wave, it makes them more vulnerable to the next wave. Hmm. I'm learning so, so much. I'm sure our listeners are as well. Go ahead and finish that thought. Well, it, it just, it, it, so 
we, what we don't want to do is feel helpless <laughs> or hopeless about, mm -hmm. about it because there is strength. And the strength is that as we find wellness as a community, then we're able to share that wellness with those who um, have families that are still struggling. Mm -hmm. And so in our way, our Chumash way, if you see a family or a child, particularly that's, that's, um, they're, they're not doing well, their family can't feed them or something, or they're maybe being uh, what we call mean to them. Um, <clears throat> then we adopt those children into our family. That doesn't mean their other family doesn't still exist. It means that that other family is now our relatives. Wow. And we have a responsibility not only to take care of that child, but then to take care of that, the, our new relatives and to help them to live a better life. Our, our ways are coming back in, 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 uh, and, and fortunately, in a way that very much promotes wellness amongst our, our people. Yeah, because I think about you were even practicing that same behavior that had been passed on to you because of some terrible events that had been happening to your ancestors. And so that's even in your generation today. And so it makes you wonder at what point do we stop being afraid? At what point can everybody kind of breathe a little bit? And then, you know, where does that start? Does it start with just understanding what generational trauma can be? How, how do people even start to kind of pick up those pieces and recognize and, and grow from it and get to a point where there's not as much fear, there's strength, there's growth. Well, that's actually very important. The, that's the solution, if you will, is to realize a few things. One is that to live with all of these responses that we have and the putting down that we do of one another, things like that, you know, well beyond teasing, mm -hmm. um, is something that came from somewhere else. That wasn't something that, that um, you know, our, our people <clears throat> were founded upon making, finding potential in one another and helping people to reach that potential. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because we needed you to, <laughs> to be successful or we couldn't be successful yeah. as people. Um, and so as we change and grow and, and regain a sense of who we are and a sense of our, our internal strength that from the land, we remember that not only do we have we been, we we have been impacted by many generations of traumatic stress it does continue today and the only way that we're, we're the days of waiting around for someone to help us and to the government to somehow solve these issues is we we're going to be waiting a long time oh we, wow right <laughs> so yeah our job is of these this generation the seventh generation is to re rekindle that healing and that help, that strength of culture that that is ours. It didn't go anywhere. It's our. It's it's in each and every one of us. 
and we use that to come together and to to bring healing and health to our communities. And that has been actually quite a bit of the work that I've done with the Tribal Law and Policy Institute, my involvement as the director of the Native Child and Family Resilience um, Center, the and and uh, some work that, that I'm doing in California with a, um, a very powerful group of men um, known as the Native Dads Network. Love and it. We, we work uh, diligently to, uh, which initially came from a group of, of I'd say a group of us, <laughs> a group of uh, Native men in the Sacramento Valley mm-hmm. who were parents. And um, and then we came together and said, you know, we need to be strong as community. And there are so many children without father figures. Hmm. We need to be good father figures for those children too. That's amazing. I had no idea there was something like that out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh culmination of many years of, of growth and we've, we've been going coming together for about 10 years but now um through we we do interventions like boys with braids we call it mm-hmm. um and um native community healing and other things where we're now taking that message out to communities and helping them to organize um self-healing from cultural ways within their community. Well, my hat is off to y'all. Thank you for the good work you're doing out there. I, I'm so impressed. You're going to have to send me some information so I can be sure to share with our uh, Native Chalk Talk listeners, especially for those that are out in the California area. So here's the tricky part of the Native Dads Network. As you might have noticed, it's NDN. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> we, we, we went for the acronym, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. I love NDN it. NDN Incorporated. And okay. uh, it's, you know, it's on the, um, it's on the internet. Our um, lead man or one of our lead people in this, uh, uh, Mike Duncan, uh, who's also California native, uh, does a daily podcast, I believe, on it and uh, talks about our journey of healing. That, that we're involved with in the Native Dads Network. Well, and it must be good for each of you as well when you're, as you know, when you're helping other people, it kind of heals yourself as well. Yes, if there is exactly. any trauma amongst yourselves, yeah. Yeah, it's a part wow. of our healing. I'm, I'm just so excited about that. There needs to be more of that out there. And throughout your career, you've focused a lot on helping Native children. So yes. what made you want to focus on, on the kids? Well, you know, interestingly, I didn't know, I I didn't really see myself as being impacted by the the um, the history of removal. I knew many many cousins of mine that had been removed. I've had, I have brothers and sisters that I've never met um, because of removal. But as I began, be, you know, we, we, when this happens within our family, we begin to think of it as, you know, something that just happens to our family. Um, 
and that there must be something wrong with us. Well, that's or, not allowed here. <laughs> there, there must be something that, um, you know, it, it, that's peculiar about our family. And what I realized as I studied uh, child welfare and the Indian child welfare, um, uh, the, the, the lead up to the Indian Child Welfare Act was how common that is, how mm -hmm. common it is um, for uh, children and Native families to be removed and um, or to be in, just involved in the child welfare system mm -hmm. and how it was a very, very small percent, maybe 10% that there was even an allegation of physical abuse, that it was almost always neglect. Oh, really? Yeah. And the neglect was based upon societal neglect. So it's so that the children kind of life that was something that society wanted. Mm -hmm. And um, therefore, the native compared to the non-native families and say, well, you know, they, they could be living in a white home who would love to have them and so forth. And, um, and in a native home, you know, that, that uh, we have challenges and so forth. And so what we, what I began to realize is that, that I know how that story ends. It ends with all of our children being removed kind of forcibly to another culture mm. much like we, you know, we that, that's been tried several times by the way there's termination there's boarding schools there's uh relocation it never worked um true we know for sure uh, that doesn't work yeah and what happens is that this the the repeated attempts to do that um will cause harm to children that that we can't even calculate mm -hmm. so i began to get very involved with the lead up to the indian child welfare act and then um with helping children and families that were um in situations of abuse neglect domestic violence and um and to a large extent testifying as forensic expert in courts um, about the needs of children uh, that were in the court system. Mm, okay. And what I found was that very rarely, I mean, there would be many psychologists and, and counselors involved with Native families, and they could often tell the court, you know, build a whole litany of case, a whole case about um, the family wasn't deserving, why they had problems, you know, um, that they were uncooperative. When I became involved in the case as a Native person, I was able to sit down with the family and say, you know, I'm not here to say what's wrong with your family. I'm here to say, to find strength that we can build on so that you can become the strong family that you were intended to be. Mm. And then I could show the court how we could do that. Yeah. How, and, how were the courts with that game plan? Well, um, to a large extent, they, they actually 
support of that. Um, there were many cases, though, and it was, it was time uh, uh, that I used to uh, kind of laugh amongst friends about that the, the worst 10 judges in California, I was appearing before seven of them at one time. <laughs> oh, my goodness, really? And I, I've had judges walk out during my testimony. I've had judges say to me that they can believe that these kind of problems might happen in the Indian family, but not in the all-American family. Oh, um, my gosh, really? How completely yeah. disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, we've come a long ways, I hope, in yes. the education of our system, but <sighs> it's still there. You know, we still have the biases exist. Um, and my work has been focused on uh, going into those courts, going into those families and, and saying we can make this different mm -hmm. on a case-by-case -case basis. <clears throat> and then now, more, more recently, I've been working on national models uh, for community wellness that come from our cultures, come from our own ways, that um, can help families to be strong and to, to find their path uh, back to the resilience that, that is ours. Interesting way to look at that, because if you think about it, there's so much, yes, there's fear, there's trauma, but there's so much strength. I mean, even just getting through each day for some people really shows their strength. So yeah. to share that with the greater, you know, communities out there, what an idea. So can you give us a sneak peek as to what that looks like? Well, we have projects around uh, the United States with, and by the way, there are many tribes doing this, this work on their own without, mm -hmm. you know, any um without any uh fanfare or whatever yeah right um but we were we were able to find communities uh community projects that were basically using their cultural ways for strength mm. to help families and then what we have done is we've developed ways of evaluating those programs can actually show the impact of the programs. Uh, typically, what happens in child welfare work is that they say, well, the, the, the programs, whatever program the parent might, of, of care the parent might need to be involved in, that it has to be an evidence-based program, evidence-based in, in the, it's effective. Well, right. interestingly enough, <laughs> when, when something is evidence-based, that means that it's effective for all cultures. And so okay. if you have something that's culturally specific, you've almost negated the, the ability to show that it's, you know, that that would ever have an evidence base because they would say, well, you, you have to have a control group. You have to be able to show us that it works in other, mm -hmm. other cultures and so forth. So what we've done is we've, we have, said no let's just see if it works for natives yeah and and um and what we found was programs it was very hard to show any kind of success in the literature with native programs it's upon strength hmm. but when we when we 
change the, the lenses that we evaluate on, and we use an indigenous way of knowing uh, evaluation model. We're actually saying what, what change happened that we experienced with the families or, or with the, the programs mm -hmm. um, that actually measured the cultural things that we were trying to change. <laughs> so the, oh my gosh right <laughs> yeah yeah wow so if you if you it's a little bit like i i use this this uh story to kind of explain it to people is if you said we're going to do a cultural intervention and we're going to have people let's just say um uh individuals who are trying to recover from drugs and alcohol that we're going to have them go to sweats and we're going to have them become in culture uh, involved in cultural counseling mm -hmm. right and we know they do better they talk to us they tell us about their growth they tell us about their ability to stay sober they tell us about even times when they maybe relapsed that they get back on the program and they're they come kind of come back to to their own way because that's what works for them mm -hmm. and then what's been done in the past is they they evaluate programs like that based on whether drug abuse went down in the community. Well, that's kind of apples and oranges. First I of know, all, right? <laughs> we we don't always have control over whether drugs go down and the drug use goes down in the community. Yeah, and are you getting factual reports or you know, are people yeah. really sharing? And and how do you also measure preventative maintenance? That's yeah, that's so <laughs> so once you can say, well, this part, this person's recovery or this family's recovery is based on their connection to their culture and the strengths and the good norms ah. of how they were meant to be as a family and as a people. And they continue those connections and those strengths and that work. Then that's what we need to do. Not our other families you know, are more families suffering that, that aren't a part of that. Right, right. Wow, that's fascinating how drawing from your culture can actually help with the healing process. And something that's wonderful about the Native American culture is that such strong community in its healthiest form, you know, getting together for community gatherings these days you know more modern is the powwows and that kind of thing too and of course the sweats as you mentioned i never even thought of that as being part of that process for your healing i mean in general but i didn't think very about powerful that as, yeah very powerful wow. part of the process and of course ceremonies mm -hmm. um, at at different levels whatever it might be for that yeah uh, people of that area yeah so, and that strength carries it carries our youth a long way um, mm -hmm. Just that sense of support in them being healthy and being good people um, in in the way that we would define that. We recently had an example of that where um, the Colville High School in California, which is the community that I was that I, I lived in for most of the time, um, they were uh, there on the border of California and Nevada, and. And um, for the first time, they went to the state finals for the state championship game, right? And nice. so all the natives were out there. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> we, we packed the place, right? Yes. Well, it, it turns out that as the tournament went on, the other team that, that they ended up playing was 
the Pyramid Lake High School team, which was from the Pyramid Lake Reservation for the state oh, really? championships. So the one an Indian team was going to win one or <laughs> can't go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so what we found was that everyone in the audience was cheering for both sides. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Cool <laughs> I got goosebumps, man. Yeah. That's really interesting. And as it should be. I mean, like there's yeah. so few of us left. Got to be cheering each other on. So it's wonderful to see, you know, people coming together to support each other, even when it's an opposing team, because there's that native element in there and we're all supporting each other, but it's not always the case. I think it's getting better, but sometimes natives are not supporting each other. And what do you make of that? Well, that's, um, you know, on a larger scale, it's a, it's a, it's an artifact of trauma mm. and that, that artifact of trauma is, it comes from a um a, a, a issue of self-concept really that we identify that if we can't if we don't feel like we can be successful as the people we are then we want to be successful and powerful from wherever we see it and so therefore we identify with people who are um uh non-native basically that happens we, we identify with what they might say. And what's interesting is it's not usually, they're not usually saying that themselves either. Right, um, right. It's, it's <laughs> probably even the wrong assessment. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but what they might say. So, um, and so what we do is we, we tend to, there's a reflex that happens in that identification with the aggressor that comes from a litany of experiences in life. And that litany of experiences has to do with, you know, everything happens, everything that happens to me, um, all the misfortunes that, that my family goes through. The only thing I can see is that people that look like me, people that come from where I come from, that they all tend to have this problem. So there must be something wrong with the people I come from or my family. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to identify that, you know, our family's just no good or our fam, our community's just no good. Natives are just no good. Hmm. And then it's not a long step from that to say, well, then obviously the people who are making that judgment must be the good people. And so I'm going to point out or or try to what we do is we we drag down the accomplishments of one another and um but i i had a great great example of um how to counteract that <laughs> do tell life. we all need to know <laughs> as one of my grandmas <laughs> she, she taught me a lot <laughs> And, Sometimes teaching can come in different forms, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And no matter what happened, you know, you could say you broke your leg. Right. She'd say, how wonderful. Oh. <laughs> and we'd, she'd say, you know, you're, you're going to mend and your leg's going to be stronger. Oh, and my go, gosh. I wow. love your grandma. <laughs> yeah, she's great. And um, 
and and so you know i've used that when in, even in my own work people come to into my office and and i tell them you know for the, they come for the first time maybe they've been referred by the court maybe they're in the court because of their um child welfare issues and i'll tell them and maybe their children have been removed mm. and i'll tell them wow it's so wonderful that you're here i'm so glad to see you and i truly am and they go well we're here because they told us we had to be here <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. like, you had to show up over here you'd be in trouble yeah <laughs> so, no but you you came you're the one who got yourself here it couldn't have been easy and wow. then just to walk through the door must be pretty hard and then to be able to sit here and tell me about you know what happened and so forth yeah be challenging. and you did all of that for your children because you love your children if you didn't love your children, you just, you could just simply walk away and say, do whatever you want. True. And so they begin to look at it and say, yeah, I guess, I guess we are here because we're kids. Right. So that's the kind of attention our kids need. That's the kind of dedication they need. That's right. And, and sometimes so, it might be hard to do anything more than that, but just show up sometimes and take that first right. little step. And same thing with when they're in the championships. <laughs> That's the yeah. job of the parent is to at least show up. You know? Yeah. Um, and it all counts. Your, your kids you know, can come to know you as, you know, a part of that troubled history that they keep getting pointed out to them. You know, the, the teacher in the school that says, I had your mother as a student and I had oh. your sister as a student. And now I have you. And guess what? I, oh, they boy. didn't work out for me, and you're not going to either. Um, Dang. So that's rough. Yeah. And so you can, uh, we can turn that around by changing people's experiences and saying, "No, we believe in you. Mm -hmm. you I don't. I don't care what you're doing. <laughs> you're doing more than than other people." Right. And, Right. The work you do in this podcast is is a gem because you're spreading the word of success. Awesome. I'll take that. Survivance. It is. It's great work. Wow. Yeah, I, I love that. And just, you know, maybe it's a good word for all of us who, you know, you know support your native brothers and sisters, whatever they're doing may be hard or it may not be hard, but support each other. Because anything else is, as you said earlier, identifying with the aggressor, right? is that as native people whatever success we have it could be, you know got your high school diploma that's a big thing that's a big for thing a lot of yeah and you had over challenges that other people don't even think about hmm. and so you know you get my vote <laughs> um that, that's something to be proud of that's awesome I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And, and we just have, we just need to become accustomed to doing that with one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, there's teasing. That's how we keep each other on the same, you know? Yeah. Thing. You know, <laughs> you got to keep each other humble. <laughs> and, um, but we can also say, make sure that, that people that we feel amongst one another 
that we have the complete support because that support is what we need in order to be resilient. Absolutely. Yeah. So friends, cheer each other on, okay? That's <laughs> it's it. a hard world out there. <laughs> and you know, something I was thinking about as you were saying that, and you know, that support and all that, and then when there's not support, and then you mix that with the historical trauma that we've talked about, I've had quite a few uh, of my native friends whose children have committed suicide from a range of age younger than you would think. And, you know, up, up into whatever age, even after their career was going and all that. And it's obviously heartbreaking. And sometimes it feels like that kind of news just keeps coming and coming. Every time I look at my Facebook and somebody's announced that, you know, that has happened again, according to the national Indian council on aging for native youths, age 10 to 24, suicide is the second leading cause of death. And the native youth suicide rate is 2.5 times higher than the overall national average, making these rates the highest across all ethnic and racial groups. And again, we're a minority and yet our numbers are, are really high in this area. So this is a big topic and it's something that's near and dear to a lot of our hearts, because again, we've experienced this within our own families or across our community. What are your thoughts on this? This, you know, suicide well, among the, our population yeah, and all that. It is in our communities. Um, and, you know, I could tell you pretty saddening stories about, you know, uh, the experience of families that I've seen. But really the issue is that it's a reflection of the hopelessness. You know, mm. the uh, depression is um, a very serious thing. It's a life-threatening disease. But depression um, is as much uh, as just having a depressed mood. That's just a small part of it. The it's depressed mood the feeling of hopelessness that things will ever be different mm, right and the feeling of helplessness mm. to do anything to change it and our children in our communities <clears throat> oftentimes grow up with this a strong sense of helplessness that that they that things will ever be any different than what they experience on a daily basis. And they grow up with a sense of helplessness to change it. And mm. so how do we counteract that? Well, obviously we treat the depressed mood. That's important. But we have to understand that what gets you there is the learned helplessness and learned hopelessness. Which so, means probably the family needs treatment as well? Yes, the family needs treatment. Oh, how but, hard is it to get, and I, I totally agree with you, how mm -hmm. hard is it to get everyone involved in that um, counseling? Well, you start with the child um, because they, they've at least, they, they, for the most part, at least accept that the child has needs. Mm -hmm. And then rather than talking about, you know, obviously we try to, to change their mood, we try to show them ways to improve their mood. Um, but that only gets you so far. It's really about empowering. When they feel empowered, when they feel like, uh, oftentimes I, I'll, I'll tell, um, I'll, I'll work with youth and say, um, 
know, what's your family known for? And they'll say, as a way of entering conversation, mm-hmm. and they'll say, oh, my family, oh, my family's no good. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? um, but in, but I'll say, no, you know, I don't think that's true. I kind of know some of your family, or I, I've, you know, wasn't, if I remember right, wasn't your, your grandfather like a really highly respected singer? And they go, well, yeah. He was actually considered a very wise person, a very honored elder. Mm-hmm. I said, that's, that's the kind of people you come from. That's who you're meant to be. And wow. right. so you want to be able to change our vision of what we're meant to be. Wow. Interesting. And then once they kind of understand that, then I said, then we got a lot of work to do. (laughs) Right, right. You got to start, you know, you've got to learn to speak in front of people and you've got to learn to, you know, carry yourself in a way that that shows that you do come from a proud family and of proud people. Right. And then now they have hope and they have a sense of being able to change things. Wow. I love that. That's really helpful. Oh, it's just such a, a strong and horrible topic, but we all need to be talking about it, don't we? We do. But we need to be talking about how do we empower our youth? How do we empower our families to change? Well, the, for, it starts with us. The way we mm-hmm. help families in our community to be well or to be on a healthy red road is by getting well and being on a healthy red road ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then saying, hey, all of my family, we're changing the definition here of what we do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you better just jump on board. Oh, yeah. And then, and then what happens is over time, and it doesn't take long our community begins to change. We begin to think of ourselves as different. Look mm-hmm. what happened with drinking. Right. In, in a short amount of time, we began to stand up and say, we're not alcoholics and we're not going to live that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't define who we are. And so in a short amount of time, people started saying, we're not, that's, that's not who we are and that's not what we're going to do anymore. That's what teach our children we don't even know mm-hmm. well i know how we got that way alcoholism and substance abuse are is the number one symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder oh okay so i think that's big too because historical trauma we might just look at people and say okay substance abuse um sexual abuse um what else? Suicide. Those are just all kind of the exterior of what's really going on in that historical trauma, right? Or yeah, like those are said, identified symptoms okay. of, mm-hmm. of trauma. Wow. So we can chase the symptoms all day and not right. get very far. But when we say, you know, let's let's change the experience, let's change the way we see ourselves and the things that we accept except mm-hmm. amongst you know, our community and ourselves. Then we begin to fill people with hope, with empowerment, and 
with the sense of who we were meant to be as a people. So, so where do people go for help? Does the Native American community typically somewhere in the area have someone that they can go to that understands the Native American culture and trauma? Well, not always. And so to a large extent, we have to, to change the way we provide services to what we call a trauma-informed way. And I've worked with many tribes in, in that process mm -hmm. of understanding how trauma affects people and understanding that that makes the, the way that they access services different. Ah. And, um, and so we have to make allowances for that. We have to change the way we provide services. And we also have to, again, begin at home. So, you know, if you're one of the things that we teach people, trauma-informed care is to provide safety. Mm. And mm -hmm. people say, well, that shouldn't be too hard. I feel fairly safe here. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you start looking at it, do you really feel safe? Yeah. Do you, do you feel like um, things are you done well in your job you feel like you're you can be relaxed in your own skin and your work yeah it, um, being used to something is different right. than actually feeling safe right and the, the the crux is that you can't give something away that you don't have mm. and so we begin to train people how to do very simple things to make people feel culturally empowered safe develop mm -hmm. a trusting relationship Indeed. collaborate you know like i believe in you enough to be, to allow you to be the decision maker in your own change and many people aren't used to that hmm. you tell me what i have to do and i'll tell you why i can't do that <laughs> right right so I have a friend who's non-native uh, and she's a psychologist in Oklahoma. And of course there's a huge native American population in Oklahoma. And I was telling her about the conversation that you and I were going to have this evening. And she was so excited. And she said, Oh, I just wish I knew how to deal with my native patients more in that way. So she was looking forward to hearing this episode when it does come out for, you know, there are communities, as you were saying earlier, that not every native community has the um, access to maybe a native psychologist or someone who specializes in that. So for the general population of psychologists out there that are working with the native population, do you have any, are there any resources? Is it easy to even just Google, you know, how to um, how to work with that community? Well, there, there is a whole, um, that I would, I recommend to psychologists three things. One is that become a part of the community. Being external to the community makes you almost inaccessible ah. to the community. So people have to see you as, as accessible. So they, so if you're a part of their community, then they can meet you in informal ways and know that you're not someone that would present harm to them. Fascinating. The one, That's good advice. Yeah. The other thing would be to learn the history of particularly the trauma history of the communities that you're working with and the culture that you're working with. 
learn the cultural ways, learn what's, you know, right and wrong. Um, fill yourself with that information so that you're at least informed. Mm -hmm. And probably most importantly is to follow the tenets of trauma-informed care. And the most powerful pillar, what we call a pillar of care, and trauma-informed care is cultural empowerment. Mm. Okay. And that um, allows you to build on the strength of individuals rather than their deficits. Ah, very good. I'm going to make sure I write those down um, so that our Native Chalk Talk listeners can also hear that in case there's someone out there that might uh, benefit from that knowledge. That's great. Thank you for sharing that art. And the good part is that you don't have to be a professional to do that either. True. You could, you could be a community member and do the same thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Be a friend, you know? Yeah. Hmm. I feel like there's be a, be a so- a good relative. Yeah, totally. So my mom many years ago used to work for um, DHS in our area mm-hmm. and she would transport kids from one house to another based on, you know, getting a kid out of a situation or taking one to, from one foster home to another. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a hard job sometimes when you're seeing these situations and some of the oh, stories yeah. that she would tell us were so awful. And some of them she couldn't even talk about because it was just so, so rough. And I think some people, you know, we're in our happy little bubbles. Maybe we had a good childhood or we're raising our kids in just a healthy best way we possibly can. Some people don't know what goes on in certain households, obviously. And it's probably, it's probably a lot more heart wrenching than some people would think. And obviously we don't want to talk about all those details on here, but is there anything that, that you would say to maybe people who observe things in a neighborhood or, and this could be for any culture. It doesn't have to Mm -hmm. just be, um, you know, like a fellow native with a fellow native, is there a way to call each other, you know, hold each other accountable or, or help each other. Or if you see something that's rough going on, how, what does someone do when they're observing something like that? Well, first feel empowered enough to, to intervene, but maybe just as important to teach. Mm -hmm. Our elders used to be great and, and still are um, great teachers. Mm-hmm. And so they would instruct us by, by sharing knowledge with us. And um, for instance, if, if we saw someone who was in a, you know, was being mean to their children, mm-hmm. we, we might say, you know, there's a lot of reasons in our community that we're not, you know, we don't treat our children that way. Oh, wow. Um, and then <laughs> right? they tell a story about that. And they might say, you know, it, it really points to your need for help more than the child's need for help. Wow. So, yeah. And, and in our community, um, the, you know, many times elders will say, you know, just here, give me the child. <laughs> I'll go over here. Well, right. you know, I'll get, I'll get them calmed down. You go take care of yourself. Yeah. No. That's very interesting. Yeah. Not, not that uncommon, really. <laughs> and, and, and then, but then to reach out to that parent and say, you know, what's going on? So this, 
you know, not not scold them, but to just say how how can we be helpful here? Yeah, um, yeah, not you, scold them, not be judgmental. Just maybe yeah. that person needs a hug <laughs> or needs some yeah, some guidance. A bad day or a bad you know month, mm -hmm. and to know that they have support. Absolutely. We did uh, some work at one point where we took um, families in our communities. Uh, we did a poll. We, I sent my workers out. We did poll a poll. We did door to door. Yeah. And we said, um, when you're in crisis at two o'clock in the morning and the baby won't stop crying, <laughs> right? Who do you call? And Ooh. most families could identify. Well, I call my aunt so and so, and she's you know. Mm -hmm. a nurse or something and um and so what we we did is we did an honoring of those people oh, that they so were the neat. ones that reach out in their families they're the helpers in their families that they're kind of carrying the burden of their family if you know i mm -hmm. mean if you know any of them you know that that's kind of how it works yes <laughs> they also are the ones who spend the restless nights worrying about what's going on in their family very true and um, they need support. And we also need to learn to be more like them. Mm. And we mm -hmm. can only do that by being healthy ourselves. Wow. So that people, you know, we don't turn to someone for help because they're unhealthy. <laughs> you know? Right, right. We turn to someone for help because we see them as being wise or healthy or, or a good, stable person. Mm -hmm. and we want some of that indeed yeah because it, it's an interesting thing to um what you just said there i think those are good tools for any community um because if you think about it how many families let's say the child and and therefore the family whether it's through the courts or whatever it is what percentage of those are getting the help they need through a psy psychologist such as yourself and I would bet that it's probably a very small percentage of those who really do need some guidance and support and help. So in other words, if you're not seeing everyone out there that needs your services, then actually, let me not say services. Care. In other words, there's a greater population out there that is really needing help. And sometimes that might be the only help they'll ever get is support from their fellow aunt or their, you know, friend or maybe, whoever it is and maybe that's better help. <laughs> because mm -hmm. that help is right there with them all the time yeah um, right and you know we one of the projects i'm involved with um that is very successful um is a project from the rincon uh reservation from the uh uh tribe there mm -hmm. um that's being developed and has been developed it's called the My Two Aunties program, and oh, right. it's based upon a way in our in our um, communities in Southern California, and I think many many tribes, many people have this, that you learn from your aunties, and so the aunties come and they visit the people at the homes, and they they teach them. I love that. Not just parenting skills, but teach them like these are these are things you can, like stories you can use to teach your children why we don't hit each other yeah or why we're why we're um we have to take care of our families 
That's um, amazing because it's so proactive. It's getting in front of this thing. Yeah, and then we call it the My Two Aunties program because the other part of our 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 tradition that's very much in line with our tradition. By the way, the aunties would come to your house and Aww. have coffee and visit, yeah, and talk to you and so forth. But when two aunties show up, you know something just happened. Ah, <laughs> like somebody has crossed the line here somewhere. Oh. And now, now right. we need to talk to you. The reinforcements are here. <laughs> That's right. Something has gone awry. Oh boy. <laughs> and, you don't want those two aunties showing up your at your house. No, sir. Yep. Yep. It's it's time for you to have a lesson <laughs> and to <laughs> to learn about who we yeah. are as a family. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's interesting. I like that. And so it's wildly successful within the community there, and and we're we're uh, we, it it's being uh, shown to be very effective, and wow. we are uh, hoping to kind of put it in a, put it together in a way that other communities can then develop that for themselves. Hmm. Very interesting. I like that. So if you don't have one of those in your area, get you one. That's right. <laughs> the aunties are all over the place. <laughs> they don't have to be nurses. Right. Have to be good people. <laughs> right. Absolutely. People that can help. Wow. You mentioned to me once that there's a lot of room for hope. And I agree. Um, how so, in your opinion? Oh, we have so much hope that the, I mean, look at our youth and when, when I, I work with a lot of youth. And, Mm -hmm. um, when you see in their eyes that they've accomplished something that they didn't think they could do. Wow. When they, when they um, are in there struggling, but, but getting it done all at the same time. Mm -hmm. When you have parents that are, are reaching out to other parents and saying, you know, we need to, we need to care for one another in, maybe in their family. We see families coming together at gatherings like like I'm at today, where the the question is, how can we be stronger as families and as a community, and how can we get to be the people that we were meant to be as a people? Hmm. And what were that? What was that? Right. What, what, what does our creation stories tell us? And that's the the goals that we set forward, and that's the healing that we need. So I think there's a lot of room for optimism. Beautifully said. So anyone who listened to, listening to this today, take heart. There is hope. So you are the co-director for the Center for Native Child and Family Resilience, where you focus on prevention and intervention and respect. So thanks for your work there. You're also an advisor for the Capacity Building Center for Tribes. Tell us more about what this organization does. Well, the Capacity Building Center for Tribes is a project uh, of the Children's Bureau, which um, helps tribes to develop their capacity to provide child welfare services and and care to children within their jurisdictions. Um, we are all under the umbrella of the Tribal Law and Policy Institute. That's who, that's who pays my salary. Okay. Um, 
and the Tribal Law and Policy Institute helps tribes to assert their sovereignty. And, you know, um, they have one of the conclusions is there is no more responsibility than to their children. Mm -hmm. And so with that, we, in all the work that we do, we resolve to make families stronger, make communities stronger, to empower tribes to um, be in charge of their own affairs, <clears throat> excuse me, in charge of their own affairs, mm -hmm. and to promote wellness within our community. So I'm, I'm just fortunate to be a part of this work. Yes. Um, I wake up every day saying, man, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> you're pretty lucky. That's, it's, a, um, it's good stuff you're doing. Well, and there's, there's room for more. This isn't, you know, it's not a, uh, there, we have a great need for people to become involved in this, in this work, whether it be at a community level, a state level, a legislative level. You know, I tell people that, you know, our families have so many needs. Our communities have so many needs that the positive in that is that you can start anywhere. True. Very true. And you've given us some tools for that today. Well, we're hopeful. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. I, I think we all need to listen and take heart to this and, and take these tools and use them. Not, not just listen, not just hear what Art is saying, but let's all listen and, and take it to heart and make sure that we are helping others however we can in a very healthy way. We thank you for all you've done for the children and for trying to help us get a handle on historical trauma. Before we close, are there any Native causes or businesses you'd like to promote? Well, uh, you know, the Native Dads Network is, is that work is very important, as is the work of the Tribal on Policy Institute and its sub uh, programs, the Center for Tribes and uh, the um, Center for Native Child and Family Resilience to work with the organizations and mechanisms that we have to better our communities. And, and when we do that, what we find is that all the barriers between those organizations start to melt away. Mm -hmm. We start to realize we're all on the same side. We have limited resources. And so we pull together uh, some of our partners in, in the Native Dads Network, White Bison, um, the um, Native Wellness Institute and the um, Native Fathers Association. So these these are all, we have so many agencies that are all parts of the solution. Um, volunteer, give to them, do whatever you need to do to be part of the answer. Wonderful. Thank you for giving us those um, opportunities to look into. I will be sure to post those, the information to those organizations on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. And finally, Art, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, if we can learn to encourage and love our children, 
on levels that we kind of never felt like we had. Uh, that there are many families that that have a hard time expressing emotions mm -hmm. to one another. Um, and the the that too is part of our our trauma history. The it stems from the fact that we from a, a situation or a period of time where we almost didn't want to become too close to our children because we weren't sure that we were going to have them long. Oh, right. Now we can reach out, we can hug our children, we can love our children, and and those around us that need the hug and love, <laughs> where whoever's yeah. child they might be, you know. Right. And in that way, we make ourselves stronger and we make our community stronger. Amen to that. Well said. Thank you, Art. And God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. I hope my listeners out there learned something today. If nothing else, we can all be sensitive to the behaviors and feelings of others. We never know what someone may have been going through, may have faced in their past. And as Art said, there is hope. If you or someone you know is in distress and suicide may be top of mind, please call 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. And Native Americans who may also be dealing with domestic or sexual violence can also chat with strongheartshelpline.org. Again, that's strongheartshelpline.org. God bless you all. Yoko Ki. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.